Welcome to the Family Crime Cast, where myself and my dad, Hey Rye, give you the inside scoop on some high-profile true crime cases. One of us is an expert, the other is just interested. Let's get into it as, as a, a family. family. Alrighty. So today on the podcast, we have a very special guest. We have Mr. Jimmy Fagan. He was the prosecutor for the trial of Richard Baganwall, the thrill killer. Um, my dad had worked with Jimmy for several years. Dad, do you want to kind of give a little background on Jimmy? So Jimmy and I probably have known each other almost 40 years now, uh, probably from the early 1980s uh, until today. And He's still one of my really good friends, and uh, we've always had a great time together and enjoyed our company. He joined the Monmouth County Prosecutor's Office in 1982 after uh, a career as a prominent defense attorney. And I remember I was a young prosecutor, just myself becoming a prosecutor in 1982, and having Jimmy come on board uh, to our office really was something that everybody was excited about because now we had a experienced trial attorney joining our uh, team who obviously knew what it was to try a case but also knew how to defend a case and now he was with us trying to prosecute cases and uh, so we're really happy to have you here today jimmy happy to be here thank you so much for coming for taking time out of your sunday for to join us uh to talk about richard baganwald so let's jump right into it when did you become directly involved in richard baganwald's case sometime in either november or december of 1982 uh, we had in the prosecutor's office in Monmouth County, every assistant prosecutor at some point in time would get what we call the cold case. In other words, an unsolved homicide. Uh, Anna Alesowitz, uh, in this particular case, was the victim. Uh, she had been missing since the summer of 1982. She was last seen at, on the Asbury Park boardwalk. Her body was found in November of 1982 in a little wooded area, actually a field uh, behind the Burger King on Route 35 in Ocean Township. It wasn't seen during the summer months uh, or even early fall because of the foliage, but Eventually, a young boy discovered it in November. It was most, mostly it was a skeleton, uh, but an autopsy revealed that there were gunshot wounds, I believe, as I recall, three gunshot wounds to the head, uh, which you could really see because it was a skeleton. Uh, at that point in time, it was assigned to investigators and it was also assigned to me as an unsolved case. Met with the investigators a number of times, a guy by the name of Bill Lucia, a great guy, and another 
detective, local detective from Ocean Township, Bob Miller. And we got together a number of times going over the case, and we had thoughts about the case. And, and where was Anna from? Because she, she wasn't originally from Asbury, right? She was... She was from Camden. She came down, I believe it was either the week before or the week of Labor Day. That's, the, that's when she had come down, mm-hmm. along with her girlfriend. And her girlfriend's uh, family had a house in Neptune, not far from the Asbury Park boardwalk. And her girlfriend thought that the last, well, believed that the last time she saw her was when she was on the boardwalk. The two of them were on the boardwalk, and Anna decided she had to go to the bathroom, but she wouldn't use one of the uh, public toilets in on the boardwalk. It's not a favorite thing for a girl to do, honestly, to use public restrooms. It's not the easiest place for us to go to the bathroom. We do it if we have to. I get it. I get it. But some of the detectives thought that that was strange, and they actually thought that perhaps her girlfriend had something to do with it. Well, yeah, it's strange because men can go to the bathroom anywhere they'd like. (laughs) They could literally turn around, go in a corner, and that's their bathroom. I'm not surprised they thought it was strange. Well, my wife didn't think it was strange. Exactly. I can tell you that. And because I, I said that to her and she said, what's so weird about that? I wouldn't go to the bathroom there. And ironically, uh, Bill Lucia, uh, who was the chief detective at the time, said, you know, I talked to my wife. She said, what's so strange about that? I wouldn't go into the bathroom <laughs> exactly on a, in a public it. bathroom on a boardwalk. So Billy and I had the same thought. You know, this... I don't know if this would make her a suspect, but they, they were convinced <laughs> of it. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, okay. So obviously she wasn't the suspect, so you did some more investigating into the case. Well, we did some investigating, but eventually there was only so much investigating you could do. I mean, some they still looked at her, uh, although Bill and I decided we we didn't see anything that would indicate that she had anything to do with it. And then... As a lot of, and the problem with cases like this, where there's no motive, I mean, whenever you have a murder case, the first thing cops, prosecutors look at is okay, friends, family members, you know, boyfriends, girlfriends, uh, what's, is there a motive here? When you have somebody that doesn't even know the victim, and who kills a victim not even knowing them, that becomes tough. It becomes real tough. And sometimes you get lucky. In this particular case, we got lucky. Uh, As it turned out, uh, Bob Miller knew a young lady who was a probation officer. Uh, Her name was Bonnie Susco. And she had recently been divorced from her husband. Ironically, her husband was dating a young lady by the name of Teresa Smith, who at one time had lived for a few months with the Beganwalds in Asbury Park. Through their relationship, Teresa Smith told her boyfriend, Mr. Susco, about Beganwald and about actually seeing a body in, in, in the garage. Mr. Susco had a good relationship with his ex-wife, Bonnie, and related it to her. Bonnie Susco, in turn, related it to Miller. And Miller calls Lucia and myself and says, we got to meet. 
We met. He tells us the story. We meet with Bonnie Susco. We meet with Mr. Susco. And eventually we meet with Teresa Smith. And what did, what did Teresa Smith tell you? She told us that she lived with this guy, Richard Bagenwald, and his wife. There was also another guy that lived there, Darren Fitzgerald, that at one time, Bagenwald had wanted her to kill somebody. And uh, she declined. And then one night he came home, woke her up, brought her into the garage, and in the garage was a dead body. So why didn't Teresa go to the cops immediately after seeing that body? Two, two reasons. Number one, she was afraid of this guy. I mean, he sounds scary. I, there, there were stories out there about him. I mean, he owned a, he owned a, it was an apartment, uh, and there were other people in the apartment. I remember one of the guys we finally tracked down because we thought he was dead. He owed money from past rent. Guy's name was Ed, and I can't remember his last name. I think it was Much More, something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we tracked him down uh, because he had left all of his belongings in the house okay. and when he left. And he just left. And when we tracked him down, we said, and, and he didn't have, you know, he didn't have anything. Uh, this was like a boarding house. And uh, he asked him, what do you, why did you just leave all your stuff there? He said, Beganwald said he was going to kill me. And I believed him. <laughs> I saw him. And I left. Wow. I mean. So she, she, she obviously was afraid of him. What was the other reason, you think, that she didn't want to I just didn't think she wanted to get involved. Mm-hmm. I mean, unfortunately, there's a lot of people that just don't want to get involved. Mm-hmm. And she had, believe it or not, she had, he had given her Aunt Anna Lesowitz's ring, which he oh took off. Oh, my God. Uh, that is so creepy. Yeah, it was... It was uh, and what did you guys do after you talked to her? First thing we did was we got his background. Mm-hmm. We found out he had been in state prison, serving a life sentence for a previous murder, uh, we found out where he lived at various times after he was paroled, and we then obtained a search warrant and an arrest warrant from a superior court judge, and the detectives initiated a plan because we knew there were a lot of weapons in the house, and there were a lot of weapons in the house. Uh, so their plan was to have one of the cops be placed under arrest in the backyard of Beganwald's apartment complex uh, under the understanding that he was arrested for attempted burglary. So it was like a setup yes. to pretend like the cops were there to arrest somebody right. else. And then they, they arrested the cop. I think it was Kennedy, put the cuffs behind him, and then knocked on the back door, uh, and Beganwald and his wife come out, and, uh, you know, this, this, this is funny in, in retrospect, but uh, they said, you know, we caught this guy, he was trying to burglarize your house, and Beganwald says, oh, no, I know him, he's okay. Uh-huh. And it was, and then we took, they took Beganwald wow. down, and... Then we went into the house and... Uh, what, did you, what did you find in the house? Found a poisonous snake. Oh, my gosh. Uh, <laughs> of all things. What was it, a puff, puff adder or yeah, something? Yeah, it was a puff adder. 
we found various poisons. We found guns uh, throughout the house. You found some date rape drugs too, right? Yeah. and all. Oh God. Uh, we found Anna Olesowitz's ring. Oh wow. Uh, which was important. Uh, and then in the other apartment where Darren Fitzgerald lived, Teresa Smith said there was a secret room there. And there was a secret room there. There was a mirror, a full-length mirror, probably about six feet by three feet, and uh, looking at it, and one of the guys opened it up, and sure enough, there was a, there was a door. Oh my and God. Fitzgerald was in there with a gun. What? Oh, oh, he was there? Yeah, he was there. He was in the room. Was he hiding? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about Darren Fitzgerald because he becomes a key witness to you in this case. What was his involvement and what did he kind of come out to you guys? Fitzgerald's lawyer came up to me. We were we were friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, known each other for a long time. As a matter of fact, his lawyer was my daughter's godfather. Really? Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and uh, said, you know, I got information on this. You know, well, my client has information on this. We said, well, what's the information? And he told us, and uh, which was, you know, a number of bodies and where they were. So we sat down, found out about the bodies, so he just kind of came to you guys and... Well, no, he, he was under deal. arrest. He was under arrest. Yeah, he was under arrest. Okay. Uh, but I was, I, I was fearful. My, my fear was that I didn't want him to be the target. I didn't want, I didn't want the defense to be able to say, he did it, mm-hmm. he did mm-hmm. it. Because uh, I still thought, and I still think like a defense attorney. So the first thing I had to do was find out when the bodies were, when the, when the people were missing, and we did that. And it turned out that he was in prison for at least two of the murders. The, the, okay. So I felt a lot more comfortable in dealing with him at that point in time because, you know, he obviously had nothing to do with it. Uh, and he gave us information on one three young ladies and a, and a, and a gentleman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what was that information? Where their bodies were. And where, where did you ultimately find First them? First thing we did was we went to uh, Staten Island. Had to meet with the district attorney of Staten Island. And we did a guy by the name of Murphy, as I recall. Bill Murphy, good yeah, guy. He was a good guy. Real good friend of John Case. Yeah. And myself as a Yeah, I liked him a lot. Yeah. I liked him a lot. Right. Uh, and... Through him, we got a search warrant for uh, his mother's house in Staten Island. We went to his mother's house, and uh, there were a couple of New York City cops there that thought we, it was a joke. They thought it was, you know, what's, what's this all about? Mm-hmm. You know, this is just silly. And, uh, you know, Fitzgerald told us where the bodies were, and we dug them up, and sure enough, they were, he had cut them up. Uh, they were in plastic bags. Uh, but we found two bodies, mm-hmm. and as soon as the first body was found, one of the cops from New York must have just alerted, because the, the media was oh, really? on top of us wow. within 
within minutes. And so the two bod- the two female bodies that were found, we had discussed them in the previous episode, was Maria Chilella, Ch- yes. Chilella and Deborah Osborne. Correct. So they were killed by Baganwald. Do you know the, the manner of their death? One was stabbed. Okay. I think Osborne was stabbed. And I, I honestly, I don't recall with Chiella. She was shot. Okay. I think in the head. Uh, yeah, that, that sim- was my recollection. Similarly to, to sure. Anna. Yeah. Similarly to that. Yeah. And then there was a gentleman found. Yes, yeah, so a gentleman by the name of William Ward. He was actually found in a cemetery. Uh, he wasn't a nice man. He was a drug dealer. And apparently he had a problem with Darren Fitzgerald and they were arguing and Richard Beganwald just came out of his house in the course of the argument and just shot the guy in the head a couple of times. Oh my God. I mean, yeah, he doesn't sound like the man you want to kind of... No, he was... Be around when things people, go south. There were people that we talked to in this investigation that were just incredibly afraid of him. Oh my God. And it was just... You just saw it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just saw it in his eyes, wow. which, which were like this. But Had you ever seen that before? No, nothing like that. Nothing like that. Wow. Uh, I mean, he was he was cold, but more than that, he you knew when he said something, you know, he meant it. Mm. You know, uh, there were there were. Remember Piggy Hurley? Mm-hmm. He he was a he was deathly afraid of Richard Beganwald. Wow. Uh, and there was a reason for it right. because he was Beganwald and Fitzgerald were planning a robbery of a jewelry store, and uh, Hurley got wind of it, and uh, he did the job, and Beganwald was looking for him, and Hurley was, matter of fact, Hurley gave us the body of John Perone, uh, Patron. That was another victim of Beganwald. That was another victim. He was like an informant, right? A police informant? Well, actually, he was, uh, he was, uh, Beganwald met him in prison. He was, a, he was, he was a con, mm-hmm. and Beganwald met him in prison, and then he got out of prison before Richie Beganwald got out of prison, and he went to Beganwald's mother and tried to extort money from her. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Beganwald found out about it, and when he got out, he took care of Patron. Wow. Wow. I mean, we didn't find much in Patron. We found just pieces of bone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. When you were talking about Beganwall and the fact that people were afraid of him and, you know, his look and what he meant, you know, our boss at the time, Alexander D. Lair, uh, talked about the fact that when he looked at these cases, particularly these young women, that there seemed to be no motive for killing these young women. And he described... Uh, Baganwall as the thrill killer, or no sense just to watch somebody die is why he killed these people. I remember as a young prosecutor sitting in on that, the case and feeling that chill when Baganwall would walk into the courtroom. I was wondering if you, you thought that that also played to the media and played to the audience or the jury and how you had to deal with that in this type of case. I... Uh... It, it, it sure played with the media, you know, and uh, Al was great with the media, you know, not, not too many people were better or enjoyed it. Quite frankly, I, I didn't. And I, st- I always stayed in the background. 
because I, I didn't enjoy it. Uh, but I was able to just put it out of my thoughts and just, you know, just did the work uh, without being affected by the media. I just put it, put it aside. It didn't, it didn't bother me at all. I didn't, I didn't want it, uh, but it didn't bother me. But, you know, Al, there was just no holding Al back. Uh, <laughs> no, Hollywood Al. Uh, and, you know, I mean, quite frankly, that's, that's the way the business is now. I mean, you know, it seems to me uh, prosecutors, district attorneys, they can't get enough of the media anymore. I mean, that's, the, you know, it's just, you know, I watch, you know, CNN, MSNBC, you know, Fox, they all have their, oh, he used to be a former federal, you know, and, you know, right. these cases, a lot of them are just talked about well before the trial it's, aspect Yeah, we it. talk about that a lot. I mean, just in, in terms of the media and how they can predict almost an outcome before it's even going to trial, or they at least have their opinion of, you know, what the verdict is, sure. you know, it's almost like people are guilty before they even get a trial. And of course, everyone deserves a fair trial. But it's just interesting. And, and personally, I'm, I'm somebody who plays into that as well. I watch it. I'm like, he's guilty. Of course he did it. Of course. <laughs> you know, so um, but I, I do think it's interesting in general, really just and of course, it, it really started, in my opinion, and maybe I'm wrong. But with OJ, I mean, that just became it became entertainment. And and I think that's like, you know, kind of a problem. And if, like I said, I'm into it, too. But these are people's lives and their lives were lost. And these girls were 17 years old and and they had a full he- life ahead of them. And then this guy, Richard Bagenwall, came along yeah. and said no more. And and it's, you know, this borderline of entertainment versus real life hardship and sorrow and, and loss. And it's kind of... Well, the real, the real sad thing about this is every police department where these young ladies were found, they all thought that they were just, you know, runaways, drugs. I remember Bill and I, when we found uh, Betsy Bacon, we, we went to the police department in Seagirt. She was from Seagirt. And uh, Bill and I, it was a Saturday. So Bill and I go over there on, on a Saturday, and we just wanted the police reports from the missing person. Right. And I, remember, and I don't remember who the police officer was, but he's talking to me and Bill, and he says, oh, he's on drugs. You know, she just ran away. And Bill and I had found the body the day before. Wow. And I remember getting in the car with Billy, and Billy just turning to me and saying, boy, is he going to feel like a real schmuck tomorrow. Yeah. What was with, sorry, with the 70s and 80s, even the 90s a little bit, they love to say these kids ran, ran away. It was always like their go-to, like, oh, they just ran away. Yeah. And, like... People know their families, right? People know. If I went missing, my family would know she did not run away. It's not a thing. And the, it was just so common back then to just put it on, oh, they ran away, when really the worst had happened. Yeah. And when you had all of these different girls, young girls missing, um, because they were sort of categorized by each department as runaways, no one really realized that there was a serial killer in Monmouth County. It wasn't until Anna Loesowitz was found and Jimmy and Bill Lucia started putting all those pieces together 
that all of a sudden the realization is that, hey, listen, this we have a really individual monster mm-hmm. in our community. And, you know, they did a great job of bringing him in and, and prosecuting him. Well, yeah, props to you for, for putting that all together because I, I think there's just a lot of people that they chopped it up to runaways when, when that, that oh, wasn't, wasn't the only case. Me. I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, so, you know, the trial. Yeah, so let's get into the trial. Um, what, going into it, how did you prepare for this, like, monumental serial killer case? And, and, and what was your main pieces of evidence that you were going to bring? The main pieces of evidence, aside from the testimony, the ring... Of Anna Olesowitz. That's important. I thought it was very important. Mm-hmm. The gun, which was used to kill her. You guys had the actual weapon? Yes. And more importantly, the ammunition from the gun. The bullets. Yes. And the reason that became important was we found the murder weapon not in Begenwald's apartment. We found it downstairs in a cellar, okay, which was a joint cellar anybody in the place could use, okay? Mm -hmm. Uh, But the ammunition for the weapon was found in Begenwald's bedroom. That was important, Mm -hmm. okay? The ring also important because the witnesses... I mean, Darren Fitzgerald had a had a terrible criminal history. I mm. mean, God, from armed robberies, you name it. I mean, he had been in prison. God. And I, the I, the defense can use that, right? They did use it. Mm-hmm. I would. I totally expected them to use it. Uh, I brought out as much as I could uh, during my uh, direct examination of him. I certainly. Uh, I I believe one of the. One of the things I said to the jury was, listen, this is a bad guy, but sometimes you got to deal with bad guys to get evil people, you know? Mm-hmm. That's, you know, uh, and, and I needed that cooperation to make Fitzgerald believable, even if a jury didn't like him, to say, well, you know, uh, yeah, but this. And Teresa Smith, although she didn't have a, a terrible background, uh, living with this guy, uh, as Bob said, you know, why, why wouldn't, she come forward mm-hmm. uh, earlier. Yeah, she had evidence against him yeah. early. So, so, so as much as the evidence, there were some problems that you had to overcome as the prosecutor to at least have the jury understand that you got to you got to deal with what you got to deal with yeah. in order to to put uh, a person who is really evil and really deadly away. Well, not that this sounds like a slam dunk case, but you had a lot of evidence against him. Sure. So my question is, what was the defense saying? What was they the defense? They said that it was Fitzgerald that did it, that it was reasonable doubt. As <laughs> you, you'll love this, as most murder cases go, you know, about a, a week before the case was over, I get a list of witnesses. I mean, we're into the trial. Right. And then I get a list of witnesses that the defense is going to call. They're going to call three guys from... Trenton State Prison, right. you know, who were in Trenton State Prison at the time that uh, Fitzgerald was in prison. And of course, their testimony is going to be that Fitzgerald told us he did it. Fitzgerald told us he did it. I, you know, I, I tried to bar that testimony, fat chance of that. You know, they're not going to, uh, 
Mm-hmm. They're not going to disallow that testimony. And sure enough, three guys come in from State Trenton prison. State Prison and uh, testified that Fitzgerald did it. Uh, told us he did it. Uh, and the argument now becomes reasonable doubt, mm. you know? So his his lawyer was Lou Diamond from yes. Staten Island. Staten Island. Uh, pretty flamboyant uh, lawyer on, in New York. Uh, tell us a little bit about him and, and number one, his, his how he presented himself to the jury, and number two, how you ended up uh, in your relationship with him. Lou... Uh, <laughs> Flamboyant is putting it mild. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I grew to really like Lou Diamond. I, I, great guy, uh, good lawyer. Uh, I didn't know about him at the time. There was an awful lot of press coverage of, of the Bagenwald trial. And people from New York, newspapers and television, Talk to me and tell me, you know, boy, this guy is—he's top flight in, uh, you know, in New York. He's handled all these cases and everything. And I say, oh, you know, and he was—he's a good lawyer, uh, but you know, he didn't. I don't think he knew much about Monmouth County <laughs> because he—I he, think he thought that pretty much this was farmers you know he came he came the first yeah, time we, i saw him we have sand in our toes down here we don't know what we're doing <laughs> he came down for, he's got a rolls royce uh and that's flashy yeah to and, see the, the and, least. And, and, the, and the license plate was acquittal that oh was God, his license plate. why hasn't somebody made a movie about this guy yet <laughs> oh he was uh and he the first time he walks into court he's got a mink coat oh my god you know? and I I could see people just going, you know, he had he had big rings almost on every hand finger, and I'm saying, wait, I don't know how this is gonna sell up here, you know. I know. Uh, I feel like it's this isn't Stat. You're not in Staten Island anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're in New Jersey, but, Monmouth County. <laughs> but very competent lawyer handled handled the case well, uh, and we became very good friends afterwards. You know. Uh, did you go shopping for mink coats together? <laughs> no, I'm not a mink coat guy. No, world, uh, no world, world's uh, voice for you? <laughs> no. no. Uh, but. So, so um, all right. So the trial, is there anything that you like directly remember from the trial as either, you know, something that was a slim, like a really good thing for the prosecution or anything for the defense? Is there anything that really stuck out to you that you remember uh, to this I thought, day? I thought every, I thought all the, I thought Darren Fitzgerald was a very good witness. I thought Teresa Smith was a good witness. Uh, you know, the cops, you know, they, they really weren't, you couldn't really attack the cops because all they would say is, well, I found this and I found this. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like, they had a confession. It's and, like factual. You know, yeah, I mean, they were just saying, hey, we found this and we found this. Uh, so from that aspect of it, they couldn't, the defense couldn't point a finger at a cop and say he's a bad cop, he's, mm-hmm. you know, because mm-hmm. I I try to, I, and I do it to this day, I try to streamline cases. That's just my philosophy. It might not be the best philosophy. I'm not suggesting it is. Uh but there, then there are other prosecutors. One of them, my one of my best friends, who would 
call every witness possible in a case. Mm -hmm. And his thought was, I don't want anybody to be left out. Well, I'm just the opposite. Mm -hmm. I would streamline a case, and uh, the least witnesses I needed, in my opinion, the better. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did with this case. I, I streamlined it. It's like quality over, you know, quantity almost. Yeah, but you know, some some people, you know, some 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 prosecutors are afraid that the defense will say, "Well, you didn't call that witness, you know, you didn't hear from them." I I can deal with that in the summation. I don't I don't care. Uh, well, you know, Jimmy, what what struck me, and you know, I sat through some of the trial and your closing statement was the fact that your closing statement was fairly short. Uh, it was probably under a minute. <laughs> which is the most unusual, that's really struck me, which the most unusual uh, aspect of this uh, trial. Because you, you have a way uh, of communicating with a jury. And based on your summation, you said, hey, listen, you heard what it is. You know, you have a duty and obligation uh, and uh, come back with a verdict. I mean, essentially, that was what your summation was, wasn't it? Well, my summation on a death penalty was bury him. Right. That's, I, I said that. I told the jury <laughs> to bury him. And, uh, and I think I said bury him because... Uh, he didn't have the decency to bury Anna Lesowitz, period, end yep. of story. And I thought about that. You know, I thought about it the night before, and I said, you know, I'm asking these people to, to put this guy to death. Mm. You know, they're either going to do it or not do it. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I'm not going to stand up there for an hour and a half as to, you know. Uh, and and sure enough, that's, that defense used a, a psychiatrist, and he had an awful upbringing. I, I acknowledge that. Uh but, you know, I didn't really care if he got the death penalty or not, to be frank with you. Mm -hmm. I wanted his conviction, and I wanted him off the streets. Right. Whether or not somebody is, is put to death or not, you know, yeah. uh, I didn't really care. So, all right, so let's fast forward. He's convicted. And, and what is he actually charged with? Because he had several murders under his belt, but he was only charged for some of them. Well, we charged him with, with let's see, one, two, three... We charged him with one, four, three, four, five. Five, yeah. okay. Mm -hmm. And he was convicted of all five? Yes. Okay, so after he's convicted, which, good, excellent job on, on your part. <laughs> Congratulations for that. After he's convicted, then it's the death penalty, because death penalty is on the on the table. Right. Why, with this case, and I, and I mean, this might sound like a stupid question, why is death penalty on the table for this case? Well, there's aggravating factors. Mm -hmm. At the time, believe it or not, the death penalty didn't go into effect until 1982. Right. You know? Yeah. Uh, so some of the murders, he was not death penalty eligible before because wow. they happened in 81. Got it. Okay. Interesting. And that was the two girls that we dug up in uh, Staten, Island. Staten Island. Those were not death penalty cases. So you look at aggravating factors. Uh, he had he had previously been convicted of a murder. That was an aggravating factor. Absolutely. That's one of the yeah. aggravating yeah. factors outlined in the statute. Mm -hmm. The other one and uh, was uh, the, the way the murder was carried out. And uh, and my argument was there was no reason for this. This was a senseless 
act. There was, there was no reason for it. It was especially heinous and cruel based on the fact that there was nothing there. Mm -hmm. uh, so those were the two aggravating factors. Uh, and then they had a number of mitigating factors, the way he was raised. Right. And then the court told the jury that you weigh the aggravating and the mitigating factors. And mm -hmm. if the aggravating factors outweigh the mitigating factors, it's death. If the mitigating factors outweigh the aggravating factors, it's life. If the aggravating factors and mitigating factors are equal, it's life, mm -hmm. uh, and that's it. Yeah. So they weighed it, and they found that the aggravating factors outweighed the mitigating factors. So he was sentenced? He was sentenced to death. They took an appeal, went to the Supreme Court, uh, and uh, we were to... I think it was the second, there, two, there were two death penalty cases on, on the docket that day, Bagginwalds and, and one from Essex County, and I can't remember. Yeah, one of the first ones, yeah. Yeah. Right. And I remember one of the justices saying to me, uh, well, shouldn't the aggravating factors, shouldn't the judge have charged the jury that the aggravating factors have to weigh the mitigating factors beyond a reasonable doubt. Right. And I said, I don't know how you do that. He said, what do you mean you don't know how to do that? I said, I know how you prove something beyond a reasonable doubt, but I don't know how you weigh something beyond a reasonable doubt. Either weighs more or it doesn't weigh more. Mm -hmm. Well, mm -hmm. they didn't like my argument. <laughs> and they reversed the, uh, they reversed the penalty phase. They upheld the conviction, but they sent it back for a new trial on the penalty phase. So that's a good question. So it gets sent back on a penalty. So you basically have life imprisonment in your pocket. Yes. So. Well, I had it anyway because he had been he had pled guilty to the two murders in Staten Island. So you got life imprisonment. So now you have to decide whether or not you're going to go back and seek the death penalty again. And so you did. You had a second trial, a penalty right. phase. And what happened then? That was a little tougher because, number one, I, I needed Teresa Smith again. Mm. And at this time, she had been married, had, had at least one child, and the last thing she wanted was more publicity. Right. But, you know, she testified. We had to get a subpoena and get her in, but, you know, uh, because I needed her to prove the senselessness of the, of the killing. Mm -hmm. I didn't need her to prove the prior conviction. And the defense, again, had, you know, his sad upbringing and everything. And the second jury, again, said, hey, you know, they gave him the, a death penalty. Right. So <coughs> he's sentenced to death for the second time. Yes. So he, doesn't, he isn't put to death. No. So, so how, what happened? The Supreme Court again reversed the death penalty. Mm -hmm. I can't recall the reason for it. It had something to do with the judge's charge. I remember that. And I thought it was going to be a problem because I had asked the judge to charge a certain way. Mm -hmm. Actually, it was a defense charge that I asked him to charge, but he was, uh, he wanted to, he disagreed with me mm -hmm. and he charged it and that was the reason it was overturned. So twice he's sentenced to death, twice it's overturned. Right. So then it just There's goes, a third trial. There's a third trial? What is that for? The penalty phase again. Again? Yes. And in that, and in that instance, 
I didn't handle that. I wasn't in the office at the time. But as I as I recollect, it was a hung jury. Mm-hmm. Uh, the jurors couldn't agree on the aggravating, outweighing, the mitigating. So and it became automatic life. Automatic life. Yeah. In Which jail. wouldn't have mattered anyway, because at the end of the day, the New Jersey uh, right. does away with the death penalty. They do anyway. away the death penalty, so. which was a lot of death penalty cases. Yeah. So, and then uh, Richard Bagenwald, as I looked up, he died of natural causes in 2008. Lung cancer. Lung cancer. Good riddance with him. That's it. <laughs> That's pretty much it. I have a serious problem with all murder cases. Obviously, it's a, it's an atrocious. It's the worst thing that you can do to somebody. But I I seriously have a problem when it's a case that involves young women. And, you know, being a 17-year-old girl myself at one point in my life, I and you have this life ahead of you. And then for this monster to come in who has an ego problem, a problem with society, ill-tempered, to just end that makes it pisses me off, to be quite frank. And... And I don't think he should have lived another day. But, you know, it is what it is. That's just my opinion. <laughs> as, as you can tell, Jimmy, my daughter is uh, not shy about her opinions. But It's hard on the families. I, you know, uh, I, I made it a point when I was in the prosecutor's office, I never had any contact with family members. Mm. And a lot of people complained about it to, I know Kay, I know Lair, uh, because they didn't think I was, you know, feeling enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I felt a lot, and and it just and that's why it it it, it, it bothered me so much that I didn't want to think about it. Mm-hmm. I, I you know I, I you know I tried a number of homicide cases, and uh, I made it a point of not meeting with families. Mm-hmm. They thought it was cold, and I it was the I opposite. Felt, it, yes, it was the opposite, and I didn't want it to affect me. Mm-hmm. I didn't want it to affect me. I, mm-hmm. I wanted to be able to just go in there, do what I had to do, and uh, wash my hands. I think that's, I'm a very emotional person, and I think that's, like, I, I'm so intrigued in law, and I'm so in this, but when it's the families that, you know, you you, you feel their hurt and their pain, and then, it, and then it almost becomes personal. It does become personal. Right, and then you are also put at this higher, like, almost more pressure is put on you then. Because you become personally involved, and I'm sure, Dad, you can attest to this too, and speaking with those families and, and, and what that's like. Yeah, it's exactly, I mean, Jimmy's exactly right. I mean, there is, there's a certain detachment that you have to have. I mean, obviously, uh, I think all prosecutors understand, uh, you know, what they have to do and understand uh, the dy- dynamics that's affecting the families involved. Mm-hmm. And we always took the perspective that, you know, we can't make the situation right again, mm-hmm. but at least we could bring some some sort of justice uh, to the matter. Mm-hmm. And that was our goal, is to bring some sort of justice to the matter. Uh, we can't bring any victims back, mm-hmm. but we can hold people accountable for what they do. Right. And uh, right. So that's what... You know, Jimmy and I were involved in right. for all these and years. And Richard Bigginwall was held accounted. He eventually, and then, and, you know, put to jail for the rest of his life. So do you have any final thoughts on Richard Bigginwall, just in general? What, at the end of the trial, did you feel like justice had been done? I thought that justice was done. I just, uh, I, 
One of the things that happened the eve of the first trial, before it was to begin, the day before, his attorney asked me if we would take the death penalty off the table and would he would then tell us about a number of bodies that he had disposed of over the years. Uh, the office at the time declined to do that. I thought that was the right thing to do, not, not to deal with that. Uh, but afterwards, I remember uh, Mike Dowling and I, he was on death row at the time, mm -hmm. and Mike Dowling and I took a ride to Trenton State Prison. And on death row at the time, there was a, a, a glass-enclosed uh, room where you could talk to the inmates on death row. At the time, I don't know, probably half a dozen people were on death row. And I remember Mike and I in this room. Uh, I don't know if it was glass or plexiglass. And uh, Mike's talking to me, and he says, oh, man, it got cold. Sure enough, I turn around and Bang walks into the room. Wow. Uh, he just had that effect. He, yeah. he just had that effect. Uh, there was, I've never seen anybody like him. And I've had, an, I've handled a number of murder cases. Right. So that's the last thing, like legacy. Like, literally the thrill killer. Yeah. Literally the thrill killer. Wow. Well, thanks, Jimmy. Well, Listen, this was this was fascinating. I think our listeners are going to be enthralled with what you had to tell them about the, uh, the Baganwell case, and certainly Mariah and I have enjoyed. No, seriously, thank you so much for being here and and telling us your tale of Richard Baganwell. Um, I could talk to you for hours more, but uh, we we won't keep you. So thank you so much. Sure. <laughs> and that concludes. The second episode on our two-parter on the thrill killer Richard Baganwald. What a scary, creepy, interesting case. I had a great time talking about it with my dad and Jimmy Fagan. So we hope you enjoyed it. Love you, Rye. Love you too, Dad. <laughs>